Deceptions Podcast. Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat. I was recently in Sunnyvale, California, where people were getting ready for Halloween, and from the extent of their preparations and volume of amazing decor, I gathered it's a holiday that many take pretty seriously. Decorations ranged from cute and inoffensive to, very occasionally, the stuff of nightmares. There were pumpkins and scarecrows, plastic bats and skeletons. Arches made of PVC pipe and lights were going up over the sidewalks, and plans were afoot for homemade haunted houses. And draped over many fences and bushes, eaves and walls, were, as you might expect, spider webs. Do you know the stuff I'm talking about? White, floss-like filaments clumped in a bag, which as soon as you open and begin to pull them, only expand and multiply? Of course, what's spookier than the store-bought spiders and webs is the source of their inspiration, the thing itself. Real spiders and their very real webs. Spider webs and Halloween go together, which may be the natural result of spider webs being more visible in autumn when leaves fall as well as the fact that in terms of a spider's life cycle, it's in the autumn that spiders are fully grown and often looking for a mate. Perhaps because they're more visible right around the time of Halloween in North America, spider webs have become associated with the holiday. Spooky by association, I suppose. But is that what they are really, deep down? Some research on the nature of spiders and webs took place a few years ago at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, where engineers and researchers investigated the structure of three-dimensional spider webs. Think funnel web, sheets, and cobwebs, and then recreated them digitally. The 3D webs are architectural marvels, highly advanced structures made of a surprisingly robust material, spider silk, which is five times stronger than steel. None of this sounds spooky to me when you start considering it. It's instead fascinating. A spider web serves several functions for a spider, a form of protection, a place of residence, a trap for prey, but also as a sophisticated method of communication. 
spiders are almost completely blind, and the filaments of spider silk that make up a spider web carry vibrational signals that a spider can both receive and send. Such vibrations can alert a spider to an insect caught in its web, but also can be used to pass messages between spiders as a form of communication in a telegraph wire meets telepathy kind of way. The modeling of spider webs went further than just visually recreating the structure. The engineers and researchers also attempted to understand the experience of a spider on its web orally. They found that the different links and tensions of the strands of spider web emit different frequencies, depending on their size and elasticity. And in their modeling, the researchers identified the different frequencies of the filaments and then assigned frequencies of sound to them that a human can hear. The intention was to gain a better understanding not only of the robust and intricate architecture of a spider's web, but also of what it might feel like or sound like to be a spider on its web. And this is what they discovered. Doesn't that sound exactly how you'd imagine a spider to sound? Maybe spiders are creepy because spiders are creepy in their being. Although that's probably very offensive to spiders. My apologies. I suppose the thing I find so interesting about this study is how researchers, in their investigation of spiders' webs, discovered that a spider web sounds kind of how you might imagine a spider to sound. I'm fascinated by the idea that a thing could be so consistently itself, all the way down to its cells and molecules and signals, that a spider could be, in its very nature, a spider through and through. Gerard Manley Hopkins gets at this very idea of a being being so thoroughly itself and how it's meant to be in his sonnet, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. I thought I might read it. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Cells goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces.
This poem is quickly approaching its 150th birthday. And yet, with its jolting cadences and rough rhyme, and what Hopkins called sprung rhythm, it still seems strikingly fresh and new. The ideas, though, aren't new or novel. They're actually very ancient ideas of what it means to be, beingness, which, when grasped, can have the effect of making you see the world in a whole new way. For Hopkins, every living thing does one thing. It is itself in this world, and it expresses itself, its being and essence, by its existence. A kingfisher flashes with light because that is what a kingfisher with its iridescent feathers does. A stone sings out its stoniness. A bell rings out the note that it was made to ring. And a spider spiders. And its web webs. But what about a human? How does a human being sing out itself best in this world? So much of what we're told now about being our best self seems to boil down to figuring out what you want and getting it. Figuring out what you want to do and doing it. Working out who you are from your own desires and urges and doing that, being that. Behavior determining being. But is that how it goes in Hopkins' poem? For Hopkins, a human is most himself or herself in the world when she acts in God's eye what in God's eye she is. A person is most herself when she reflects the person she was made to reflect, when she shines with the image she's made to bear, which is not her own, but that of Jesus. Or, as Hopkins puts it, for Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. For Hopkins, it is Christ who fuels the inner beingness of humans so that they can be just as God sees her or him to be. To be a true self, aligned with God and reflecting his nature. There's an uncomfortableness to such a thought, of course. It runs counter to so much of what we're told, to be what you want, who you want. But what if there's something that runs so deeply within us, a reflection that we're made to bear, that we can't actually be who we are meant to be without it? And we won't ever know it if we don't take the time to think, to consider, to ask, what does it mean to be human? The researchers at MIT asked that question of what it means to be a spider, and their findings astounded the world of engineering and science and art and music. What they found is that the world of a spider is far more complex and rich and sonorous than anything anyone had ever imagined. What if the same is true of us? That our being, that what it means to be fully human, 
alive and well in the full expression of our being in this world is far richer and more complex and more beautiful and more alive than anything we could imagine or create for ourselves. I say more, Hopkins writes. Only when we act in God's eye, what in God's eye we are, will we ever know the fullness of what we are meant to be and who we're meant to live for. Which is not ourselves, Hopkins would say, but the one who made us to reflect his being. Podcast.